All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you this morning. Um, It was said of the generation of Americans that were instrumental in helping us obtain our independence from the tyranny of Great Britain, it was said of them that they were not as other men. Both the leadership and the regular people that stood against tyranny. They were not as other men. And for that reason, we have lots of freedoms and liberties and blessings in this country today that we've long taken for granted and that are being lost as we speak. The same thing can be said of us, of our generation. Whereas for our founding fathers, who were not as other men, it was an, it's an incredible legacy, incredible compliment. But when it's said of us, it's equally true. We are not as other men, but it's not a compliment. It's a heinous indictment. You see, our society is not as other men that have come before throughout history Our churches, our politicians, our businessmen, our leadership, we're not as other men. We have no moral compass. We talk big about freedom and liberty, and we sit silently when it's taken from us. We don't stand in the gap between innocent people and evil, and we just go on living our lives somewhere because we care more about our security, our comfort, and our well-being, health, and safety than we care about future generations or truths that transcend the importance of our own personal well-being. We are not as other men, just as they were not as other men. Because they were not as other men, we've, a, a great country was born. Because, of, because we are not as other men, that country will die. It's a shameful thing. Historically... In times of crisis in American history, going back to the American Revolution, the periods of Great Awakening, the Civil War, even going back to the cusp of World War I and through the trying times of the Great Depression of World War II, historically the pulpits in this country thundered. There was lightning and thunder from the pulpits. Lightning and thunder directed at evil in our society and our leadership. And lightning and thunder that called men to repentance and humble themselves before God. We don't have that today in this time of crisis. In fact, we're so self-absorbed in this society that we actually think COVID-19 is the worst health crisis that's ever happened to this nation. Some fool who calls himself a doctor wrote an article about that this past week. I guess they forgot about the, the disease that swept through the armies during the periods of civil war, disease and sickness and a health crisis killed more men during the civil war than actual bullets and battle wounds. I guess they just forgot about that. A disease that has a 99 point, I don't know, more than 99% survival rate is the greatest health crisis we've ever seen. That, my friends, is an indication that we are not as other men. We are so self-absorbed that we can't see the forest for the trees. It's a sad thing. 
But as I declared last week, our hope and our expectation is not with men. And it doesn't die with men, and it doesn't die with us. We sang that song this morning, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. There's a phrase in there that refers to him as the desire of every nation. That's actually a reference to a passage. I would consider it a, a passage that's very relevant to this time of year. We all talk about, you know, Isaiah 9 and Micah 5, 2 and Matthew and, and Luke and the accounts there. But th- it's a passage in Haggai chapter 2, a prophecy of the Messiah. After the second temple was being reconstructed or rebuilt, and it paled in comparison to that great temple under Solomon. When the uh, exiles returned and built that temple, the old men wept because they knew the former temple and the glory under Solomon. The young men rejoiced, and God sent the prophet at a time when the people were told by governmental authorities to stop doing what God had commanded them to do. And God sent the prophets and said, get up off your rear end and you do what God's commanded you to do. And they did. And the government was powerless to stop them. The temple was rebuilt. The people were somewhat sad when they compared it in their minds to what had been. And God told them not to worry. That the glory of this second house would surpass that of the first house. Not because of its gold and silver and its grand size, but because in this house, the second house built under Zerubbabel, destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70, in this house the desire of all nations would actually come and stand. What made the second temple destroyed in A.D. 70 more glorious than the first temple is the Messiah actually came into that temple on two feet. He cleared it out twice turned over tables, thundered the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry and almost the entire last week of his life he spent his days teaching in that temple. That temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans. There was an emperor that wanted to desecrate it much earlier than that, but because one man spoke up and refused to carry out his orders, it didn't happen. But that temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. If Jesus Christ wasn't the Jewish Messiah, then we can't trust God's word. God and his prophets were liars. But he was the Messiah. He stood in that temple. That temple doesn't exist today. Those still waiting for a Messiah to come need to go back to their scriptures and see that he did come. And he's coming again. He's the desire of every nation. And because that expectation doesn't rest with men and it doesn't die with us, we ought to find it easy to stand against evil. We looked kind of at Proverbs 11 a little bit last week. You know, the theme that I want to preach about, I want it to coincide with our exegetical study of Revelation. And I want it to focus upon how we should be in these days. Because the days in which we live are sick. There aren't men like the men that were here at the time of the American Revolution. There just aren't. The ones you think would be the loudest talking patriots really are nothing but cowards. There aren't men like that to lead us. How should we be? 
Last week I looked at Proverbs 11 verse 7. The expectation of the wicked dies and his hope perishes with him. Not so with us. Not so with us. You know, in the days before Christ was born, there were those that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. They hadn't given up. And that expectation that they knew did not die with Him, just as it hadn't died with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, compelled them to be bold and to declare things in a time when there was literal tyranny. Herod was a tyrant. How should we be? I want to go back to Proverbs 11 as we're looking at Revelation. Last week was kind of an introduction to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to look at verse 1 today. But I'm kind of jumping around in Proverbs 11 as we do so because it has things to say to us that directly correspond to this study. Proverbs 11, 7 last week. Today I want to jump down to verse 10. We're going to look at verse 8 later, but so I'm going to go from 7 to 10. Proverbs 11, verse 10. When it goeth well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. By and large, it's human nature. When things go well with the righteous, there is peace, there is rejoicing. And when the wicked perish and are judged, there is shouting. I mean, it's, it's the way of things. Is this what we desire? Do we desire it to go well with the righteous in this country? Do we desire that the wicked are judged and perish? I do, and I'm not ashamed to say so. I desire to cheer and to rejoice as the towns and communities rejoiced in 1945, at the fall of Germany and of Japan, when the GIs came home. I desire that. But we don't have those causes for rejoicing today. What has to happen for these things in verse 10 to take place? What has to happen? Righteous men must interpose. I want to introduce a word to you today. I want you to remember interpose or interposition. If wicked is to be, wickedness is to be overthrown and if the righteous are to, are, and if it's to go well with the righteous, righteous men must interpose. Well, what does that look like? Well, just as we had those resting in an expectation that didn't die with them in the days of Christ's birth, so did we have those that interposed in the day of Christ's birth. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Verse 8. And he, or Herod, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till, till it came over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy. The wise men did not follow the star 
from Persia to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem. They had seen the star in Persia. They had studied it. They had studied the scriptures. They had studied the prophecies of Daniel that had been preserved. Daniel was in Persia, the, uh, the latter end of his ministry. And they came to Jerusalem because they knew the scriptures. And when they got to Jerusalem, that's when the star appeared again and led them to Bethlehem. There's a lot of intricacies about the Christmas tradition story that don't match the scriptures. But anyway, they came to the house. They saw the young child with his mother, not the newborn babe, the young child. And they fell down and worshipped him. And they gave him treasures. You know the story, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then verse 12, here's what it looks like when righteous men interpose. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. That's what it looks like. The wise men were told to return and bring news to Herod, a person in authority, a king put on a throne, a puppet by the Roman government, and the wise men chose not to obey him. They defied him, and they went home another way. That's what it looks like to interpose. Interposition is a calling of God to stand in the gap willingly placing oneself between an oppressor and his intended victims. The wise men placed themselves between an oppressor and his victim, which would have been the baby Christ, and therefore they defied, they stood in the gap by defying the king and not going back and giving him news that would help him in his designs of evil. An interposer stands in the gap or positions him oneself between evil and them suffering under it. It's placing yourself in a position. It's not the violence of Antifa and uh, Black Lives Matter. It's not the chaos. It's not the rioting. It's a positioning of oneself to stand in the gap between oppression and tyranny and tyranny's victims. There are those in our society that have a duty to interpose between tyranny and its victims. The wise, men's weren't, the wise men didn't live in Herod's, uh, Herod's jurisdiction. It could be argued that that wasn't their duty, but they did it anyway. But there are those in our society that have a duty to do this. They've been given authority by God and they are to use that authority to interpose against evil. And that's what I would call a lesser magistrate. In our society, we have presidents and congressmen and senators, and we have judges. We have state governors. We have various state offices. And then as you work down the chain, lesser magistrates would be those that are below, on a, on a rung of authority, below those that are above them. So for instance... A vice president would be a lesser magistrate than the president. And it works, its way all, it works itself down to our sheriffs, our county commissioners, and our police departments. The police, the Claremont police, are lesser magistrates. The Catawba County Sheriff's Department, they are lesser magistrates. Okay, Our state representatives are lesser magistrates. 
a lesser magistrate has the duty to interpose himself between the oppressor and those being oppressed. Between a tyrant or unjust law that is in opposition to God's law and the people under his jurisdiction that he has sworn to protect. That is his duty. That is the duty of our county sheriff. Under God, God has given him authority according to Romans 13. And that authority is to be used to stand in the gap. And if he refuses to do it, he is complicit with the tyranny and guilty before God for not using his office and the authority given to him by God. We have lesser magistrates that are duty-bound to interpose as the wise men did between us and our wicked governor. I want to read you something interesting. I've got uh, the opening of the North Carolina State Constitution here. I want to read you Article 1, a Declaration of Rights, Section 1. We hold it to be self-evident that all persons are created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator not by their governor or president or country, but by their creator with certain inalienable rights. These rights come from God. And that among these are life. The unborn child in the womb has a right given to him by God to live. Liberty. The ability to live and do as we please in a way that's peaceful, in a way that's in accordance with God's word. To come and go. And then the enjoyment of the fruits of their own labor. According to our state constitution, we have an inalienable right from God to work and to enjoy the fruits of that work. That means if you own a business, to keep it open, to work and to enjoy the fruits of that. Whether it's after 9 p.m. at night or not. Whether it involves gathering in your home with the fruits of your labor to share with friends and family or not. You have an inalienable right to enjoy the fruits of your labor and the pursuit of happiness. These things come from God. The lesser magistrates in this state, whether they are under the governor or not, our our county commissioners, our sheriff, our local law enforcement... They have the duty to interpose and protect this stuff for us between us and our governor. That is their duty from God. And when they don't do it, they're guilty before God. If they refuse to stand in the gap, they are complicit. And God will hold them accountable. Now here's an interesting aspect of our American system that's quite different from governments around the world. It puts a responsibility on us as lesser magistrates that oppressed people, even in Jesus' day, didn't have. Article 1, Section 2 of the North Carolina State Constitution. Today, I don't care about the other 49 states. I could care less. I'm talking about my home right here. And I'm, but most of these constitutions say the same thing. And they're far more clear even than the national constitution. Sovereignty of the people. All political power is vested in and derived from the people. All government of right originates from the people, is founded upon their will only, and is instituted solely for the good of the whole. 
Guess what? We, the citizens of North Carolina, are lesser magistrates in the American system. In the American system, the people are a lesser magistrate. They're not subjects. They're magistrates. We have the duty to interpose between tyranny, the oppressor, and those that are oppressed, our fellow citizens. We have the duty. We have been given that authority as citizens by God through His sovereign divine hand of providence in the founding of this nation and its preservation. And that authority has allowed the gospel to go out across the world for many years. We have been invested as with magisterial authority by God as citizens of this country. We have a duty to interpose. We have a duty, and when we don't, we are complicit. The church, forget about the Constitution of North Carolina, forget about the American government. God says in the New Testament that we are Christ ambassadors. An ambassador is a magistrate endowed with authority to preach the gospel and to preach against sin. We have a duty from God to interpose between good and evil, to interpose between wickedness and its victims, to interpose like David did between the lion and the bear and his flock. We have that duty, and when we don't use it, we are complicit. We are complicit. John Calvin had an interesting statement that he made in his commentary on the book of Daniel. There are a lot of people out there today that would fashion or fancy themselves Calvin as something that would cause John Calvin to roll over in his grave, the very idea that men were defining their theology based on another man. But John Calvin... There's a lot that he wrote and said in his commentaries that runs amok of what people would consider Calvinism today. Okay? John Calvin preached that God had a plan and a purpose for Israel and one day the nation would be restored. He said it pretty plainly. It's funny how Reformed theology that would call itself Calvinism sometimes gets things messed up in eschatology and teaches replacement theology. John Calvin wouldn't agree. Neither would Spurgeon. But Calvin said this, and this is to all my Reformed friends out there who think we should do as we're told. Wear the mask. Do as you're told. Unlimited obedience to human government. John Calvin said this, and there are those that think that way. Todd Friel is a popular commentator that does videos. Uh, He's like that. Do as you're told. This is what John Calvin said. For earthly princes or magistrates lay aside their power... When they rise up against God, when a magistrate or or, or an earthly authority rises up against God and does things in opposition to God's word, they set aside their power and are not worthy to be reckoned among the number of mankind. We ought rather to spit upon their heads than to obey them. Amen. 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 Interesting. When we as lesser magistrates turn aside from the law of God and refuse to interpose, we lay aside the authority that our Constitution has given us. When a pastor refuses to interpose between the cancer in his church and the people it's afflicting, he fails in his duty and he lays aside his authority before God and is complicit. The reason the churches are so weak today and won't stand up against tyranny is because we've had cancer in our churches and we've got churches that won't stand up against it. 
They won't exercise church discipline. They won't call sin out from the pulpit. They won't hold each other accountable. That's where we, why we are where we are. Interposition. It's a calling of God. For the wickedness to be overthrown and the city to rejoice, righteous men must interpose. Romans 13 does not teach unlimited obedience to government. And as we seek God and how we can interpose between evil oppression and those who are oppressed, we must consider this. Romans 13 does not teach unlimited obedience to government. If it did, there would be no limitation clauses. There are some pretty clear limitation clauses in in Romans 13. Government that is ordained by God is supposed to be a terror to evil, not to good. Our governor is not a terror to evil. He's a terror to good people. Government as ordained by God is to be a minister of good, not a minister of evil. Our government today praises evil and shouts it aloud and condemns good, goodness and righteousness. Government that is ordained by God is to execute justice against evil, not against good people. You know, if you're a spouse that's been abused or forsaken or abandoned and you go to a court because you... Your, your, your other spouse won't do what they're supposed to do, you'll find out real quick that the courts in this country don't exist to punish evil and reward good. They do the opposite. Even right here in Catawba County. Or governments ordained by God to be ministers of good, to reward good and punish evil, not to stand in opposition to God's law. And Romans 13 does not teach that we're to unlimited obedience to tyranny. In fact, the examples of Scripture, the example of Paul himself would would say otherwise. The righteous must interpose. One who interposes is an interposer. One who stands in the gap. There are some biblical examples of this. The wise men interposed. It didn't involve weapons or fighting. It involved simple disobedience and defiance. Not doing what the king ordered them to do. Interposition. And as a result, prophecy was fulfilled and Herod was not able to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. This is a, a, an obscure verse in some senses, but I've, it's one that I've It's one of my favorites, particularly as a martial artist. It's kind of tucked in there. Here we have a biblical interposer that lived during the time of King David. 2 Samuel 23, 11 and 12. In a list of David's mighty men. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite, and the Philistines who were oppressors of the people of Israel, up through the reign of King Saul in the early part of David's reign. The Philistines were gathered together into a troop. They were occupiers where there was a piece of ground full of lentils, a seemingly insignificant piece of farmland the Philistines had occupied that didn't belong to them. 
And the people fled before the Philistines. The people to whom that land belonged fled. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines and the Lord wrought a great victory. There was one who interposed between the oppressor and the oppressed and it was this Shammah, the son of Agi. He stood in the midst of the ground. He positioned himself and when he had to, he defended it and he alone defeated the Philistines on that piece of ground and they fled and God gave him victory. He interposed. He stood his ground. Second Kings chapter 11. This account can also be found in Second Chronicles chapter 23. I'm not going to read all of this, but this happened around 886 BC at a time of incredible tyranny. Not only in the northern kingdom of Israel, but also the southern kingdom of Judah. The wicked line of King Ahab had infected the line of Judah in the southern kingdom. King Jehoshaphat, in his foolishness, aligned himself with the wicked. And he he married his son off to a daughter of King Ahab. They had a son who became the king of Judah. So he was just as much the blood of Ahab as he was the blood of David. And this son, who was a son of Ahab, whose mother was Ahab's daughter, was also a son-in-law of Ahab, we're told. So he married a, he married a daughter of Ahab or a granddaughter. And so we had all of this wickedness and no one stood against it. Well, God rose up Jehu, the general in the northern kingdom, and Jehu was used by God to root out the false religion of Baal in the northern kingdom. And he assassinated King uh, Jehoram of the northern kingdom and this son of Ahab who was on the throne in Judah, Ahaziah. He was used by God to bring judgment upon them. Jehu also ordered Jezebel to be thrown from a window and her blood splattered the ground. Well, when the king of Judah's wife heard that her husband had been killed, she being a daughter, a granddaughter of King Ahab, took matters into her own hands. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here from 2 Kings 11. And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, okay, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. This Athaliah was the daughter of Ahab who married Jehoram. Ahaziah was a son of Ahab and a son-in-law. So Ahaziah had a wife that was from Ahab's family tree. But we're actually talking about his grandmother here. Or his mother, not his wife. But this, this wicked daughter of Ahab, Athaliah. When she saw that her son was dead... She arose, took power, and and tried to slaughter all the royal seed there in Jerusalem to stamp out the line of Messiah. But, verse 2, Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, so a mother's daughter, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain, and they hid him 
even him and his nurse in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. And he was hid, and he was with her hid in the house of the Lord six years. Six years they hid this young boy in the temple, and Athaliah did reign over the land. Now, when Joash later becomes king, he's seven years old. That means this kid had literally just been born when all this happened. And the sister of this wicked king, I mean the sister, of this, uh, uh, the, the sister of this dead king defied her mother and stole this baby away and hid him in the temple. For six years this wicked queen ruled over the land. And in the seventh year, verse 4, Jehoiada, who was the priest, <coughs> sent and fetched some people. And then we go down and see he got some people around him and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. On the Sabbath day, when nobody's paying attention much and everybody's resting, we're going to get three companies of a hundred. I want a hundred of you to stand and guard the front door. I want a hundred of you to guard the outside. And I want a hundred of you to come in with me into the temple and we're going to bring the king out and we're going to reveal him to the land. And you're to hold your weapon in your hand. And you were to stand in the gap and protect the king at all costs. He was only a seven-year-old boy. And then we get down to verse 11. In fact, Jehoiada the priest armed these people himself. He took weapons that David had dedicated to the temple of God. And he armed the people with these spears and shields. And the guard stood, verse 11, every man with his weapon in his hand round about the king from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple, along by the altar in the temple. And he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony and they made him king and anointed him and they clapped their hands and said, God save the king. And when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people, to the temple of the Lord. And when she looked, behold, the king stood by the pillar as his manner was... And the princes and the trumpeteers by the king and all the people of the land rejoiced and blew the trumpet. And Athaliah rent her clothes and cried, treason, treason. And before anyone could come to her aid, Jehoiada ordered her carried outside the temple where they executed her for her crimes. And thus tyranny was ended. We go down to the end. It didn't stop there. And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal and broke it down. His altars and his images, they break in pieces thoroughly and slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. And then it talks about how the boy was brought out and put upon the throne of David. In the verse 20, what happened? Just what Proverbs 11 verse 10 said would happen. And all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet and they slew Athaliah with the sword besides the king's house. Seven years old was Jehoash or Joash when he began to reign. A daughter of a wicked mother and a priest interposed between evil and its intended victims. Stood in the gap hid a young boy and guarded him. And as a result, the line of Messiah was preserved 
And the bloodline of David after a couple more generations would gain dominancy again. Interposition. Stood in the gap. And the people of the land rejoiced. Here's the sad thing about this story. There were those that interposed to protect young Joash. Joash was a good king as long as he had Jehoiada, the high priest, to hold him accountable. But when that high priest who lived to a great age, I think it was 130, finally died and he lost that accountability, he began to be corrupt. And at, toward the end of his uh, reign, I guess it would have been about 30, uh, 46 years later, around 840 B.C., something very sad happens. He forgot what was done to him. 2 Chronicles 24, 17. Now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. This is Joash. Then the king hearkened unto them. So Joash would have been in his 50s, I guess. And they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for their trespass. Yet God, He sent prophets to them to bring them again to the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. God sent prophets to interpose. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, Joash's protector. Which stood above the people. He stood up on a stool. He stood up on a little preaching stool that elevated him above the people. Man, the people hate that when you do that out on the street. They hate it when you stand on a stool. But he stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress you the commandments of the Lord that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord and He has forsaken you. And the crowd conspired against Him and stoned Him with stones at the commandment of the king. The king ordered Him killed. In the court... Of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, The Lord look upon it and require it. And God did require it. Joab, I mean, Joash was assassinated later, and his kingdom was judged. God sent a very small company of men from Syria, a, co- a small company of men came into the land and oppressed it during the latter end of his reign. Here we have an example of what happens when there is no interposer. There was an interposer when Joash was a child, but when Zechariah the prophet came from God, no one stood in the gap to interpose for him. Not the king, not any of his officers or the princes under him, not anybody in the crowd, not any of the other priests in the temple. There was no interposer. And God's prophet was murdered. And as a result, the land suffered terribly. There were interposers in the scriptures. There were terrible times when no one stood in the gap. And as a result, terrible things happened. But we can also look outside the scriptures. Some interesting things that affected biblical history you may not even know about. A.D. 39... There was a Roman governor, not Pilate. This was after his time. There was a Roman governor, Publius Petronius. He was the Roman governor of Syria and Palestine. This was after Pilate. 
Pilate was the governor in AD 30 when Christ was crucified, buried, and resurrection, resurrected. Also, the day of Pentecost, AD 30. <clears throat> this is AD 39 when this happens. Now, let's set the context. I would say that Paul was converted in AD 31. It really wasn't that long after Pentecost that Paul was converted. Stephen's ministry wasn't very long. AD 35 would have been his first visit to Jerusalem where we're told that he spent uh, uh, 15 days. He tells us that in Galatians. And we have a short verse in Acts that kind of tells us what happened there during that first visit. Acts 9, 29 and 30. And, the, and he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Paul went to visit the apostles in Jerusalem and he was preaching in the streets and there was a conspiracy made to kill him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. So this would have been in AD 35. Paul had to flee Jerusalem and his brethren helped him along and he went to Tarsus. Paul would have spent the next seven years in Tarsus, his hometown. So from AD 35 to 42... More or less, he was in Tarsus. So when this event I'm going to tell you about happened, Paul was, had fled and was in his hometown growing in the grace and admonition of the Lord. A.D. 49 would be Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. So that's kind of the context. We're in A.D. 39 while Paul is in Tarsus and before his first missionary journey. Remember, he comes back with Barnabas at the Jerusalem Council and they tell how God had wrought mighty things amongst the Gentiles. This is before Paul's first missionary journey. This Roman governor was ordered by Emperor Caligula to go into the Jewish temple and to erect an idol of the emperor and demand that the Jewish people worship it. You see, this Caligula was a nut job. He was... Nuts. He thought himself a god. He wanted people to worship him. He appointed his horse as a consul to the Roman Senate. He was crazy. Not quite as crazy as Governor Roy Cooper, but close. <laughs> Caligula ordered the governor to force the Jews to worship him as God and to put a statue of the emperor in the temple and to use his army to do it. The statue was made in Sidon, which is north of Israel today. And Petronius, this governor, prepared his troops to carry out these orders while they were wintering in a town called Ptolemais. While they were waiting out the winter, the Jews got word of this. And they sent delegations to remonstrate. That's another word I want you to remember. Interpose and remonstrate. What is it to remonstrate? To remonstrate is to present strong arguments and warn against an act of evil. It's a supplication or a petition for the removal or the prevention of evil. Guys, we have a responsibility not to just go to a ballot box and vote. I'd say you're wasting your time going forward with that. But we have a responsibility to remonstrate with our elected officials and warn them about supporting evil. 
And that's what the Jews did here. They sent delegations. Petronius decided to meet with the Jews in Tiberias. And he, brought, he had his army with him. And there was a crowd of Jews and his army. And they continued to plead with him and warn him. And he was so moved by this that he literally went out and stood between the Jews and his army. That could have easily put this down. He stood between them. He had been ordered to put down any resistance by the emperor and do whatever he had to do. But instead, he stood between the people. And this is what he said. He announced that their interposing, he didn't use that word, but their pleadings and their arguments had so moved him that he would not value his own safety and honor over their preservation. And he decided that he would not enforce that order. And so he sent a letter to Caligula saying he would not do it. Caligula was so enraged that he ordered the governor to commit suicide. It was like an honorable way. Uh, uh, Somebody in power was given the opportunity to kill themselves and do it honorably, or if not, they would be killed dishonorably. And so he, he drafted an order that the governor was to kill himself or be killed. Interestingly, before that order made it to the Roman governor in Palestine, Caligula was assassinated by his own guards. So the order had no value when it arrived. And as a result, God's temple was not desecrated in A.D. 39. It was destroyed in A.D. 70, just like the Bible prophesied. The act of a lesser magistrate had a profound impact on the history of the New Testament church and the gospel going to the Gentiles. Remember, a big part of Paul getting to Caesar was coming to Jerusalem, being arrested in the temple, preaching in the temple. The Roman governor, I mean the Roman official there, interposed between Paul and the people. And as as a result, Paul went to Rome and fulfilled his ministry. All because one Roman pagan governor interposed. You know, sometimes the heathen have a greater understanding of honor and righteousness than those that should know better. There are heathen nations today that have more of a moral compass than we do here in America. There are heathens that would interpose for a preacher and some of these, uh, a street preacher in some of these heathen nations long before a pastor would here in America. It's the truth. Now, There was great revenge. The greatest revenge against Caligula in this desire to be worshipped as a god came some years later when Nero was on the throne. Nero didn't start out as a tyrant. Anybody that tells you Romans 13 was was written while Nero was a tyrant and killing Christians is a liar or ignorant of history. Okay, Nero didn't get crazy and start blaming the Christians until about A.D. 67. And it had to do with a paranoia. It had to do with his counselor, his trusted counselor, uh, died in AD 62 and he no longer had accountability and he got paranoid. But when Paul wrote Romans, he would have been imprisoned in Caesarea. And Nero was actually quite benevolent. 
toward Christians. In fact, when Paul went on to Rome and was under house arrest, he was given great liberty. And then we learn in Philippians that Paul was part of the greatest revenge against Caligula's desire to be a god that could ever be executed. Philippians 4.22. Paul says this, All the saints salute you, chiefly, especially they that are of Caesar's household. There were saints in Caesar's household. Not long after, maybe two decades after Caligula perished, ain't that revenge? That's revenge just as sweet as the grandchildren that the Jews had after the Nazis fell. Sweet. Paul was obviously given uh, special access in Rome to Caesar's household that he shouldn't have if at that time Nero was a great tyrant. He wasn't at that time. It came later. Men we trust in can betray us and become evil tyrants. Yes, it's possible that Donald Trump could do that. And evil men can become benevolent because others interpose. Let's fast forward to some modern times. I just think these things are necessary to share. Romania, December 15, 1989. About this time of year. The people of Romania had long been under a tyrannical government. Nicolae Ceausescu, his wife Elena, was a hater of Christians. It was during this time that Romanians were terribly persecuted. These are the times when... Uh, um, uh, just escaped my mind. Uh, Tortured for Christ, the book that was written. Uh, what was the man's name? He was Jewish and his wife. Oh, blank, blank, blank. Uh, founder of the Voice of the Martyrs ministry. Okay, he was Jewish. His wife was Jewish. They were Christians. They were persecuted terribly. Went to prison. Saw people killed. Saw people betray them in their own churches. The people had been under a tyranny for a long time. But God was doing things. In the town of Timisoara in the northwest, God began to do things. There was a pastor a Laszlo Tokes who began to speak out boldly and thunder from the pulpit. The church grew. It was mainly elderly, but God's truth took hold amongst the youth and the church started to grow and there were like 5,000 people coming together at this time. So the government under Ceausescu ordered that this pastor be arrested. He hadn't done anything other than preach and people came to assemble so they ordered his arrest on December 15th and the secret police came to do so. And the rumor went out and some people in the church heard that this was coming. I don't know how it got out. And so they gathered and decided they were going to blockade the doors. They were going to stand at the door and not let these secret police come in even if it meant their death. The secret police, so accustomed to compliance were actually stunned and didn't know what to do when the people refused to back down. So they backed off and they waited down the street thinking that eventually these people would get tired and go home. Instead, the word spread. And within a few days, over a thousand people surrounded the church to interpose 
between these wicked secret police who would say, oh, we're just carrying out orders and this pastor inside. That action right there proved to be a spark that lit a fire. This was December 15th. Now the police eventually broke through and seized the pastor. But the people that had gathered from the church spilled over into the public square and the crowds, people started being emboldened by this and the revolution began there in the plaza in Timisoara. It, it, it bled down into Bucharest. When, when Nikolai Ceausescu gave his last speech to the people, one man stood up and said, down with Ceausescu. And the crowd erupted. December 15th, they came for the pastor. December 25th, Christmas Day, 1989, the Romanian people got an incredible present. An incredible present from the Lord that was a result of some people interposing. Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu were tried in a basement. The trial was 55 minutes long. They were escorted out and put up against a brick wall and they were killed. They were executed, shot to death, and their bodies lay dead for all the people to see. The tyranny came to an end, Christmas Day, 1989, because some church members interposed and stood in a doorway. And the gospel came to Romania. It opened. Years later, I crossed from Moldova into Romania, and our vehicle was pulled over, and we were searched. Our trunk was full of Bibles and gospel materials. During the 80s, if this had happened, we would have been arrested. The man asked us, the Romanian border guard asked us, are you missionaries, are, these, are, are, these, are you bringing these materials into my country as missionaries? And my answer was yes. And he said, thank you, welcome to Romania. Because Christians stood in the doorway. Are we going to stand in the doorway when the sheriff comes to get our pastors for holding gatherings? I pray we will. Interposers. A spark that lit a fire. April 19th, 1775, Lexington Green. The British troops were sent to the town of Lexington in Massachusetts to seize weapons and supplies from the citizens. A small company of citizens and militia under Captain John Parker decided to interpose. I think this is a, an account worth reading. I'm going to read it from this history text written by a Baptist preacher. At approximately 1 a.m. on the 19th of April, a loud knock was heard on the door of a country parsonage. As the door swung open, Paul Revere strode into the presence of Sam Adams, John Hancock, and Reverend Jonas Clark, pastor of the Congregational Church at Lexington, Massachusetts. His report of 700 approaching British soldiers was met with excited ambivalence. After this meeting, Revere wrote off into the his history books as well into the arms of his British captors. A council of war was hurriedly convened. The responsibility for calling out the militia lay with Hancock, who was the chairman of the Committee of Safety, a lesser magistrate. The question of the hour was whether or not the people would fight. Would these humble farmers and mill hands dare resist the greatest army of professional soldiers in the world? Reverend Clark assured his guest that he was well acquainted with the state of his flock. They would not only fight, but they would also be willing to lay down their lives 
The com- this confidence stemmed from his faithful pulpit ministry. In a recounting of Clark's pastoral patriotism, it is stated earnestly yet without passion, he discussed from the pulpit, pulpit the great questions at issue of his day. And that powerful voice thundered forth the principles of personal, civil, and religious righteousness and liberty and the right of resistance to tyranny in tones as earnest and effective as it had been the doctrine of salvation by the cross. Hancock was convinced that approximately 2 a.m. the church bells started ringing and the sleepy-eyed Minutemen began assembling on the church green. Lexington Green was church property. Two 16-year-old boys played an accompaniment on the fife and drum. However, after waiting over an hour, the 45-year-old militia commander, Captain John Parker, ordered his men to disband, but to stay alert. Suddenly, at 4.30 a.m., the bells began to clang again. This time, the enemy was coming. As the approaching columns of seasoned Marines advanced ever closer, Captain Parker assembled his meager force of only 77 citizens in two anemic ranks, some of these teenagers. A palsied Sam Adams prevailed upon John Hancock to retire with him as their cabinet positions necessitated that they avoid being captured at all costs. However, Pastor Clark agreed that he would stay and fight alongside his congregation. It is stated among the most alert was the minister himself with a gun in his hand, his powder horn and pouch of balls slung over his shoulder. By his sermons and his prayers, he so hallowed the enthusiasm of his flock that they held the defense of their liberties a part of their covenant with God. His presence with arms strengthened their sense of duty. Under the eye of the preacher, Lexington Common was alive with the Minutemen. Outnumbered 10 to 1, Captain Parker ordered his men to allow the Redcoats to pass by unmolested. Yet with manly stipulation, stand your ground. Don't fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have a war, let it start here. When the lead British commander, Major John Pitcairn, shouted at the Patriots from his steed, Disperse, you blankety-blank rebels. Lay down your arms and go home. Doesn't that sound like the Raleigh police when people were protesting the lockdown? They indignantly complied with the first order, but they refused to lay down their arms. And in the confusing confusion, somebody fired, most likely the British. And this set off a bloody encounter that only lasted a few minutes. With all due respect, it goes on to say, without, with all due respect to Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was an American writer who, had, who used the phrase, the, the shot heard around the world. With all due respect, the real shot heard around the world was fired first on a church lawn in Lexington. Interposing, interposition. What happened in Lexington that day where Christian people, led by their pastor, decided to stand between tyranny and the citizenry is why we're able to be here today. It was the spark that lit the fire of the American Revolution. 
I'd love to go into more detail about some things that happened in recent years. I, I would encourage you to look into them. October 15, 1890 in New Orleans, there was a police chief who did interpose for righteousness and who fought against the corruption and the mafia that had come into that city and fought to serve and protect his citizens. He was murdered in broad daylight. Murdered in broad daylight. And the criminals that were arrested, what took place later in the courtroom and with the judge and with the defense attorney and the prosecutor, it was so corrupt. It was a kangaroo court, just like our Supreme Court today. And these murderers were going to get off scot-free. But one of the prosecuting attorneys decided to interpose. W.S. Parkerson, he, took, he, he gathered about 60 local citizens and refused to allow this travesty of justice to take place. They marched to the county jail where these men were being held, where they would soon be set free, these murderers. And the citizenry brought them out and hung them in the streets and executed justice. August 1st and 2nd, 1946, GIs that had come home from World War II came back to find their town, their town of Athens, Tennessee, McMinn County, hopelessly corrupted by a, a, a local government that had taken advantage of their families while they were off to war. There was an election, much like our national election today, corrupt, where the current administration that was hated was miraculously elected again. There was election corruption, crooked ballots, and these Marines that had come home decided they weren't going to allow that to stand. And they interposed there in McMinn County, Tennessee. They call it the Battle of Athens. G, uh, GIs stood in the gap and determined not to allow a false election to stand. Gunfire was exchanged, but the corrupt city government fell. Where are the remonstrators? Where are these interposers today? Where are they? There was a time in Israel's history when there were none there. And God asked the same question in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. This is the question God asked. Chapter 22, verse 30. Or not a question, a declaration. God said, I sought for a man, one man among them, that would make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, when you see therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for. I poured out my indignation upon them. Had there been one that would have stood in the gap and interposed, perhaps God wouldn't have poured out his indignation, but he did. Because there wasn't a single interposer in the day of Ezekiel. Why should we as Christian citizens, entrusted with the authority as lesser magistrates by our federal and state constitutions, why should we embrace such a ministry and find it easy and automatic to stand in the gap? It should be easy and automatic for us to follow these examples, but we don't. Why is that? Why should it be easy Precisely because our hope doesn't die with us, like I preached last week. Precisely 
Because our hope doesn't die with us. Our desire of all nations is not Donald Trump to be reelected. It's the Messiah to come. And for that reason, we ought to find it easy to interpose between oppression and the oppressor. Precisely also because of what John sees in Revelation 21 verse 1, we ought to find it easy. Precisely because of what he sees. This itself ought to be enough to motivate us to stand in the gap. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. That itself ought to be enough to embolden us to interpose against tyranny. But it's not. A new heaven and a new earth. Abraham's dream. Our expectation. Abraham saw these promises afar off. God brought him into the land. God gave him a piece or showed him a piece of land his descendants would possess. The land doesn't belong to Israel. It belongs to God. The land is mine, God said, but he leased it out to Israel. Abraham was given the son of promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They never saw these promises come to pass. They were tent dwellers. Jacob had to go down and live in Egypt. So did Joseph. But they saw these promises afar off and were convinced of them. And therefore, what did Abraham find it very, very easy to do in Genesis 14? When that, that, those wicked, tyrannical kings came and carried off Lot and the people of Sodom captive. Abraham found it easy to interpose for Lot. He took 318 servants, he armed them, and he chased these kings and pursued them all the way to the Canaanite city of Dan. It wasn't called Dan at that time. In fact, if you go to those ruins today, not only can you stand on the foundation of the golden calf uh, idol that Jeroboam erected in Dan. That foundation is still there. You can actually see the Canaanite gate of the city that was, ere- that was erected at the time of Abraham. They've unearthed it and you can look at it and you can see the gate that Abraham would have walked through with these servants to interpose for Lot and to rescue him and bring him back. Remember, he came back to Sodom and the Sodomite king wanted to pay him and all this and then Abraham wouldn't take it, but he gave a tithe to Melchizedek, who I believe was Shem in his uh, great old age, a type of the Messiah. Abraham found it easy to arm his servants and to interpose for Lot because of his expectation and the promises God had given him. What about us? Will we interpose? There's a curfew coming down from our governor this week. You mark my words. 9 p.m. you will be told not to leave your house. Businesses are going to be locked down again. They don't want you to gather and celebrate anything about Jesus this time of year. This is a devil spirit that is trying to break your spirit. Will we interpose? Will we block the door when the police come? That's the question. We should find it easy to do so because of our hope and our expectation. We're told that the first heaven and the first earth in Revelation 20 fled before the face of the judge who sat upon the great white throne. It melted with fervent heat. Bam! 
It was gone. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 describes it thus. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. You know, God's not slack. He's not willing that any should perish and He's patient. But the day of the Lord will come. Mark my words, Peter says. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are in shall be burned up. The first heaven and the first earth are passed away. Revelation 21.1 were passed away. They burned up like Peter said. This is our expectation that does not die with us. This is when ultimately the righteous in the city will rejoice. The city of God. Even beyond the rapture and the reign of Christ. Even beyond these things is this this our ultimate expectation. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 13, he describes that expectation. He says, but we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. The syntax here in the, in the original language, in Peter and in Revelation 21 verse 1, are exactly the same, are the same. That is our ultimate expectation. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have hope and expectation for the rapture and the millennial reign of Christ and God fulfilling His promise to Israel in the new Jerusalem, but our ultimate expectation is a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And because that is our ultimate expectation, we can also rejoice in these other things that may come to pass. That's what I'm going to talk about in the next week or so. Because we look for a new heaven and a new earth, what manner of people ought we to be? Peter asked this question, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? If it doesn't affect our behavior, we've got a problem. If if it's our expectation, our behavior ought to be affected. If it's not, it's not our expectation. I don't care what you say. Should we not be interposers between evil and tyranny and its victims? If all of these things are going to pass away and a new heaven and a new earth is coming, should we not find it easy to interpose against evil, especially when our system of government has invested the people with the authority of a lesser magistrate? When John says new heaven and new earth here, he's not talking about a renewed or a renovated earth. You know, I've heard people say this. This isn't a renovated earth. It's a new heaven and a new earth. How do I know this? Some people try to say, well, the Greek word can mean this or that. Well, let's look to where God first talks about a new heaven and a new earth in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 65, 17. Peter and John aren't talking about anything new. God promised these things through His prophets. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. John says the first heaven and the first earth will be passed away. Isaiah says, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. In Hebrew, maybe Eric can can appreciate this. It says that God is going to create shamayim chadashim, the aretz chadashim. 
There's a word in there he probably recognizes. The word chadash means new. Jeremiah 31, 31 says that one day God would give Israel a brit chadashah, a new testament. Exact same words that are printed in Hebrew on the front of a Hebrew New Testament. God said the day would come when he would give them a new testament versus the Old Testament. And that's why Jews should want to read the New Testament. It's right there in their prophets. As it's the same word, the same adjective that describes God's New Testament and the new heaven and the new earth. As the New Testament is to the Old Testament, it's not a renovated Old Testament. It's a New Testament. It doesn't replace the Old Testament or cancel it out. It fulfills it. In the same way, the new heavens and the new earth are to this present creation. It will fulfill it. It will be new. Jesus said you can't put new wine into old wineskins. You can't try to sew new cloth into an old garment. It'll make it worse. This is a new heaven and a new earth. New wine and new wineskins. Just as the New Testament is enfolded, or the gospel is enfolded in the Old Testament and unfolded in the New. What is enfolded in the Old is unfolded in the New. So what is enfolded, the, righteousness that the, 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 the righteousnesses that are still enfolded in this creation will be unfolded in the New creation. What was veiled in the Old Testament was unveiled in the New. What is veiled here because of the curse of sin will be unveiled in the New creation. Because of that, there's actually some things that will transcend from this creation and continue on into the new creation. Isaiah 64 verse 4 says, Since the beginning of the world men have not heard, neither perceived by the ear, neither has the eye seen, O God, besides thee, what he hath prepared for him that waits for him. God, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard what God has prepared for those that wait for Him. These things will be realized fully in the new heaven and the new earth. Now there's an interesting caveat to this promise. Paul states it or quotes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9, but we never go to verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 9, As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. But God has revealed them to us, the church, by His Spirit. I hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard, but the Spirit has revealed it to us, the church, through the Word of God. We've been given portraits and pictures, just like here in Revelation 21.1. Revealed to us by the Spirit and therefore our expectation and our hope. Not a dark secret held with a secret priesthood somewhere. Revealed by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, because God has revealed these things to us by His Spirit, revealed these things about a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, therefore we should find it easy to stand in the gap in the face of evil. We should find it easy not to fear Joe Biden or Roy Cooper. Their expectation will perish with them. Their destruction will ultimately bring rejoicing. 
Even from people who voted for them, if the tyranny continues long enough, even people who voted for them will clap and applause when they fall. Our expectation is sure. Theirs is not. It should be easy for us to stand in the gap. Last night I saw a post on the official Facebook page of a local police department in the state of Mississippi, a small town called Aberdeen. I believe it's Monroe County. I believe it's somewhere between Jackson and Tupelo. Small town. Official Facebook page made an announcement that the governor had ordered a curfew and that gatherings were not to be allowed and that they, the police department of Aberdeen, would be enforcing this. You better be in your homes at 9 o'clock. You better not be gathering. We will issue tickets. We will expect full payment immediately or arrest warrants are going out on the 14th of December. Literally threatened the citizens of that small community. Threatened them with arrest. My question is, are there any, is there anyone there in that small town that will interpose between this diabolical, damnable evil at the level of a local police department that refuses to interpose on behalf of their citizenry with a wicked dork and idiot of a governor who is Tate Reeves in Minnesota, who's a Republican. Stop putting your trust in Republicans. They're some of the biggest tyrants. This guy is a dork, and if a guy slapped him in the face, he'd fall over and never get up again, and yet he's a tyrant because nobody stands up against him. Will anybody interpose? The Christians of that town ought to find it easy because of these truths, but they probably won't. What happens when that comes? What happens when the Hickory Police Department says something like that? Are we going to quit meeting? Or are we going to stand in the doorway? Are we going to go home and cower? Or are we going to turn Ronnie's living room into the OK Corral if we have to? Those are questions. The answer should be easy because we look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Three things in Revelation 21.1, indulge me a little bit. A new heaven and a new earth. Not renovated, new. Chadash. New Testament, new heaven, new earth. The first is passed away. The Greek word there means, think of this image. And we, Eric and Bibi and I saw it a lot. We had to make Bibi drive one night, past when she was legally able to do it, because I was too tired. Jamie was still getting over to jet lag. And so she drove across the desert in Nevada till about 1 or 2 in the morning. So she can appreciate this image. Imagine a long desert highway and you see the lights of a car approaching from a great distance. And it takes a while, but it inches closer and closer and brightens things up and then it just passes on by into the night and then it's all dark again. It comes, seems to take forever to pass, especially if they don't turn their high beams off, but then it just passes on by and it's gone. That's the image here, the imagery of the word that's used. Like a pair of headlights on a lonely desert highway at night that just passes on by and you don't even think about it again. You think about it when the high beams are blinding you, but when it passes, never think about it again. That's the way this earth is and will be one day. It will pass. It's what Jesus said would not happen to one single jot or one single tittle of God's Word until all is fulfilled. What Jesus said would not happen to His Word will happen to this present creation one day. We ought to find it easy to stand in the gap. Isaiah defined it as not being remembered or coming to mind anymore. The third thing we see here is an interesting phrase. There will be no more sea. Well, what does this mean? No oceans? 
Will there be no oceans? I mean, some of us love the beach, the salt water, the coast. No more oceans? Well, historically, there has been much danger, darkness, and the unknown associated with the sea. You can't drink it. There's a lot of danger out there. You know, I had the privilege traveling home from Alaska one year. We decided, the guy that was traveling with me and I, I had seen it some years earlier. We're coming down the Alaska Highway, and there's a dirt road off to the left, and a hand-painted wooden sign that says, this is the way to the Northwest Territories, which is a province in Canada. I'd never been there. And so we finally, we passed it. We got gas about 10 miles down the road in Fort Nelson and decided, you know what? Let's go up that road. Let's see where it goes. And it ended up being a long trip on a dirt road. We had to camp out there in a highway shelter. It was cold, below zero, but the northern lights were amazing. And we came to this town on the banks of a huge lake. It's the size of one of the Great Lakes, probably the size of Lake Superior, called the Great Slave Lake. It's in northern Canada. And before we left town and started driving south into Alberta, I was intrigued with the shore. I wanted to just walk up to the shore. So we pulled up, and it was a horrifying scene. It was very cold, and the edges of the, the lake had, had frozen, but the lake was very choppy, and it was very thunderous out there. The wind was biting cold. It was overcast, and the, it's like the waves had frozen as they were breaking on the shore, so it was a real broken-up, frozen landscape, and if you went out far enough, you could get to where the water wasn't frozen but water was coming up through the ice. It was horrifying. It was scary. But I just determined I want to go to the edge of the water. Not very smart. I had on a pair of Carhartts and a big coat. It was probably close to zero degrees. And I started picking my way across this very fearsome ice. And I realized that the water was farther out than I thought. And I'm starting to think I probably should turn around. And as I went to take a step, I fell in the ice up to my waist. And everything from my waist down went into the water. And by the time I got back to the car, my pants were so frozen solid that I had to sit in the heat of the car for a little bit before I could even take them off. It was horrifying. It was scary. There are fears you know, concerning the sea that are scary. Perhaps uh, there won't be anything like this in the new creation. Our present oceans that separate the land masses were created by the great flood. You know, there was land and there was water. I believe the continents broke up. Maybe there won't be such separation in the new earth. Maybe the new earth will only have fresh water. We know it will have fresh water because there's a fountain of life that comes out of the throne of God in the new Jerusalem. Maybe there won't be any saltwater oceans. I don't know. Or maybe there's something else to consider here. I don't know if you guys remember back on, you probably don't, January 27, 2019, The passage we were talking about was Revelation 19, the second half of verse 11 verses through verse 13. Go back on the podcast if you want to hear it. We talked about this. We looked at passages like Genesis 1, Job 26, Job 37, Job 38, Psalm 148. We talked about the three heavens, the first heaven, the sky, the second heaven, outer space, the third heaven, the abode of God. And there are some things we learn. We were talking about Revelation 19, verse 11, where we, John says the heavens opened. And who came down? The Messiah on the white horse with his saints. In chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation, a door is opened and one goes up. John, just like the church will go up. 
the rapture. 1911, the whole heaven was opened and the Messiah and his armies came down. I don't know if you remember talking about this, but I think it might be related to what John says here. I'm just going to summarize it. You can go back and listen to that message. We learn from these scriptures that there are waters somewhere in the north, up above the firmament, up, 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 up there somewhere that hide the face of God's throne. And they serve as a boundary for time. Some passages we looked at in Job. And we're told that death only exists under those waters. That means under this boundary that upon which God's throne sits under that is the universe and only under that is their death and time. These waters are a strong sky boundary spread out. Job said, I think it's Job says they are molten like a looking glass. In other words, they reflect back. If that's the case, then that would be why there appears to be so, so many stars out there. This sky boundary is hidden and frozen and it's a boundary, Job says, where day and night come to an end. We talked about uh, what's the temperature that water freezes, kids? Anybody know? 32 Fahrenheit. What is that Celsius? Zero. But there's another temperature I bet you've never heard of. It's another scale called Kelvin. Zero degree Kelvin is what we call absolute zero. It's about negative 460 or 460 below zero Fahrenheit. At zero Kelvin, absolute zero, all molecular activity ceases. Therefore, there would be no time. No time, no day, no night. The Bible says there's a sky boundary somewhere where there is no day and night, no time. These frozen waters are held in suspension over the universe. Exactly what John describes, a sea of glass. Revelation 4, the throne sits on the sea of glass. As you get into Revelation um, uh, 15, verse 2, John sees a sea of glass round about the throne. In chapter 15, this sea of glass is mingled with fire ahead of the seven vile judgments. And the saints are gathered, the martyred tribulation saints are standing on that sea of glass with harps calling for God's judgment. So by Revelation 15, that sea of glass is starting to melt. And then in chapter 19, guess what? It opens. Christ comes out. God's dwelling, we're also told in the Old Testament, is straight north. In fact, sometimes God's throne is substituted for the direction of north on the, camp, on the, on the compass. It'll mention southeast and west, and then instead of, instead of saying north, it'll talk about God's throne. God's dwelling is straight north, beyond the fixed north star somewhere, over the empty space, above the firmament, out through the frozen waters, beyond time, and a fixed boundary. The abode of God, the third heaven, the place where Paul was called up to in a vision. One day, when Christ comes back, that boundary is going to open. And later, I believe, what John is referring to, it's going to be removed altogether in the new heaven and the new earth. In the new creation, no more vast saltwater oceans, perhaps. Or are we being told there will no more be a fixed boundary between the Creator's throne and His creation? 
I think we have the answer in chapter 21 of Revelation, Revelation verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. There won't be a boundary between God's throne that you can only cross via death in the new heaven and the new earth. God's tabernacle will be with men. I think that's the essence of what John's talking about. I wouldn't die upon that hill, but he's already talked about the sea of glass twice at least, and then heaven is open, and then he says there won't be any more sea, no boundary. Maybe it means no saltwater oceans, perhaps, but I believe the answer is in verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Indulge me just a moment. It won't take long. It's necessary for next week. Turn back to Isaiah 66. Remember, these truths ought to make it easy for us to interpose in the face of evil. That's why I share them today. Isaiah 66 also speaks of the new heaven and the new earth. John speaks of it. Isaiah speaks of it in chapter 65. And he speaks of it again in chapter 66. And this, these verses highlight another important truth concerning the new creation. Verses 22 and 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, before God's throne. No boundary, saith the Lord, in the new heaven and the new earth. This teaches us that it's a new creation but there are certain entities from this heaven and this earth that will transcend and continue on into the new creation. At least four things. One of them is mentioned right here. Thy seed and thy name. What is that? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel will continue into the new heaven and the new earth. It will be preserved and continue on indefinitely. Abraham's dream fulfilled. We also know, as we, we, will, we will also see as we continue in Revelation, that not only will the nation of Israel transcend the present creation and go into the new creation, so will the church and the new Jerusalem. We see in Revelation 21 that the church, the bride of Christ and her future home, the new Jerusalem, are, are inseparable. John sees... A city coming down from heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then later, after seeing the new heavens and the new earth, the angel comes to John and says, look, I want to go show you. Let's go look at the Lamb's wife. The new Jerusalem is synonymous with the Lamb's wife, the bride. The bride and her home are inseparable. They will continue. Now, in chapter 21, from verses 10 to 27, it's an aside. Just like you see in Revelation 17, as the events are unfolding chronologically, there's a pause. It zooms out, and John is taken aside and shown the whore on the scarlet beast and the role she plays. 
Here's an aside. There's a zoom out. Let's go look at the lamb's wife. Let's go look at this new city of Jerusalem. And in this part of the chapter, we see that this detailed aside is new Jerusalem as it is in the millennium. When there are sinners, when there is death, when there is darkness that still resides in the heart of men. We've talked about all that. So this new Jerusalem is in the millennium, but it transcends into the new heaven and the new earth. And we see it in the new heaven and the new earth before we see it in the millennium. But it transcends. Guess what also transcends from one creation to another? Revelation 19 verse 20. And the beast was taken with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which were deceived, that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. That is in this creation at the coming of Christ, the lake of fire. The prophet Isaiah calls it Tophet. And we're told in chapter 30 that God kindles it for the false king the Antichrist, by the breath of his mouth. The lake of fire in this creation, this present creation, during the millennial reign, at the end of the millennial reign, someone else is cast in there. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They are there a thousand years later. They're not annihilated. They're still burning. And the devil joins them. Then chapter 20, verses 13 and through 15. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So here we have the lake of fire ignited by the breath of God's mouth. When the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown in at the end of the tribulation, it's still there at the end of the millennium. The devil's thrown in there. The great white throne, the wicked dead, are, are, are transported from the county jail, hail, to God's state pen, which is a lake of fire. It's there. First creation. God destroys the first heaven and the first earth, but He doesn't destroy the lake of fire. Isaiah 66. We've already said God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. The people of Israel would remain before him. And all the, nation, all the people are going to come worship God before his throne. And what are they going to see from a distance when they come to worship in the new heaven and the new earth? And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring to all flesh. This is the lake of fire in the new heaven and the new earth. It's an eternal burning testimony that people will see from a distance. Jesus quotes this verse in Mark when he talks about Gehenna, damnation being a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. An eternal, visible, burning and testament. It will transcend. That burning testament, just like an eternal flame at a memorial, will, will transcend into the new heavens and the new earth. We'll see it from a distance. It won't be a source of sorrow. Because God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. It will be a cause for rejoicing that God is just and evil has been judged. There's one more thing that will transcend and we can hold it in our hand right now today. The Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. 
Psalm 119.89, Thy word, O Lord, is established in heaven. The place where God's throne is, the third heaven, up above that sea of glass, God's word is established forever. Psalm 138.2, God says that He's magnified His word even above His name. Even above His own name. His name transcends all of eternity into the new creation. So shall His word. I find it unbelievable that people would say they love God and they're Christians, but they don't believe the Bible. When God says He's magnified His word above His name. Unbelievable. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24? Heaven and earth will pass away. New heavens and a new earth, the first will pass away. Jesus said and affirmed what John saw in Revelation 21 verse 1. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. They'll continue into the new heaven and the new earth. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, Peter contrasts the things of this creation. Grass, flowers, the glory of men versus the word of God. The things in this creation, grass, flowers, the glory of men will pass away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Guys, a new heaven, a new earth, with Israel, the people that I love, with the church, my family, my church family, an eternal burning testament to my salvation from sin and the Bible. Our ultimate expectation. They can't take our Bibles. They'll be with us in the new heaven and the new earth. The Word of God will stand forever. This is our ultimate hope, our ultimate expectation. It can't die with us. And that ought to make it quite easy for us to interpose, to stand in the gap, to say no more when that curfew comes out next week. No more. You'll have to kill us to make it us budge. Just like those Romanian Christians said standing in the door to protect their pastor. That pastor, Pastor Laszlo, he was eventually taken away, but he survived and has given testimony. Even in recent years, he's, been, he's uh, given testimony in different places. You'll have to kill us to make us budge. I want to end with this. Back to that passage in Ezekiel. God found no one to stand in the gap. If you back up a few verses and put it in its context, you're going to see that in Israel at the time, the prophets were corrupt, the priesthood was corrupt, the princes were completely corrupt. And society was corrupt. All four of these were hopelessly corrupted. And when, when all of these were corrupted, God sought for an interposer, one who would stand in the gap, one who would interpose among the people. But he found none. Therefore, verse 31, I poured out my indignation upon them and I consumed them with my wrath. I sought for a man, verse 30, among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Guys, we live in a similar time. Our national government, our state governments, our local governments are hopelessly corrupt. 
The churches, many professing churches are corrupt. Our society is corrupt. Are there any who will stand in the gap? You know, we can interpose not just before wicked men, we can also interpose to God. That's where it starts. If we're going to interpose and take up that role, we need to start by interposing to God. That's what Abraham did in Genesis 18 for the righteous people of Sodom. He interposed to God. He stood before the Lord and interposed, Lord, if there's but ten righteous people, will you deliver the city? God said He would. Guess what? There weren't. Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. Even his daughter's husbands wouldn't come with him. Four people came out of there. The wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. And we like to think that Lot's daughters were so wicked, oh, they committed incest with their dad and got him to... Okay, whatever. They actually thought God had completely destroyed everyone. There was nobody left on the earth. If you go back and read what they say, they thought that that God, based on what they saw, had completely obliterated everyone on the earth and there was nobody left. And that motivated them in those things. But, of course, Moab and Ammon came out of that and the source of Israel's problem for many years. It's easy to judge people in complex times. It's a foolish thing to do. But Abraham interposed to God. David did that, this in Psalm 139. He interposed to God. And what did that look like? And I'm not going to read all of Psalm 139, but it's a great one to read in these days when you think about Joe Biden, Roy Cooper, the news media, our government that's become a terrorist organization. Read Psalm 139. David interposes to God. Let not an evil speaker be established in the earth. Let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. Lord, those that hate thee, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. God, uh, David interposes to God. Hebrews 4 tells us we can interpose to God. We can go into His throne room because of what Jesus has done and we can come to Him boldly to interpose to Him. If we learn to interpose to Him and petition the courts of heaven, stop, stop this mealy mouth praying where, oh, you know, God, I pray our leaders will follow you and all this kind of, no, they'll get saved. Stop all that. These wicked people who ain't God, go to God and pray for God to judge them. That if they will not repent, that He will destroy him. And therefore, that the righteous will rejoice. And that men will fear God and come to Christ. Call them by name. Call them by name boldly and interpose to God. That if they will not stand in the gap, if they will not stand for what's right as a lesser magistrate, that God will destroy them like He would destroy. If our local... Law enforcement won't stand in the gap to protect the citizens of Catawba County. May God scrape them from the ground as I pray He'll do so for our governor and for this corrupt president-elect. We need to interpose to God. If we'll learn to do this, if we'll learn to embrace what Hebrews 4 tells us, we will find the strength to interpose as lesser magistrates before wicked men. If we'll learn to interpose to God and change our prayer life right now and get bold and blunt because we can with God, He tells us we can, 
then we'll find strength to interpose before wicked men. And we ought to find this easy because of the promises here. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate expectation. The expectation of the wicked dies with them. Proverbs eleven seven. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is shouting. Verse 10. Ultimately, this is going to happen. But it's not going to happen now unless the righteous interpose. Let's let our ultimate expectation, our interposing to God in our prayers, let's let those things give us the strength to interpose now. Just like the wise men did. And that starts with civil disobedience. We don't have to be loud and angry and threaten people. We don't have to do anything. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about standing in the gap. The wise men did. So should we. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this word you've delivered to us this morning, for the responsibility we have that's been entrusted to us. There are nations around the world where people have never known the authority of lesser magistrates invested with the people in this country by your divine hand of providence. Lord, help us to understand. I pray for our local leaders. Lord, I'm not going to pray for Joe Biden. I'm not going to pray for Roy Cooper today. Lord, I pray you would destroy them, that you would turn them upside down and clean them like a dirty dish, Lord, if they will not repent. I'm not going to pray for them. But I do want to pray today, Lord, for our county commissioners here in Catawba County. I pray for our sheriff, Don Brown, who claims to fear you, Lord. I pray for him. I lift up Chief Wisnett and Hickory, the chief here in Claremont, the police chief in Newton, the police chief in Longview. Um, I lift these commissioners, the mayors of these town up to you. They are all lesser magistrates. And some of them claim to fear you. And I pray today, Lord, that you will strengthen them to be interposers, to stand in the gap between us, the citizenry, and the tyranny and the terrorism that is in the governor's mansion there in Raleigh. I pray these men will do the right thing, that they will not be like these wicked devils in Aberdeen, Mississippi, that they will stand and that we the people, especially those of us who fear and love God, that we will stand with them and support them as they fulfill this role. So I just pray for these men, Lord, that they will do what's right by the law of God and be willing to stand in the gap between the people they, are, they have sworn to protect and the tyranny that orders them not to protect their people. So give these men strength. Some of them are believers, Lord. Lord, help us to be interposers, first to you and before wicked men, to take a stand that others might see and fear and come to Christ, that people might be freed as those folks were, Lord, in Romania because some Christians were going to protect their pastor. Lord, we're thankful for those testimonies. We're thankful for those Christians who gathered on Lexington Green 1775, we're thankful that you used a Roman government, a governor there in Israel in 8039 to carry out your purposes for Israel and the temple and the New Testament church. We're thankful that believers interposed for Paul and helped him to escape the sea of Jerusalem. Others lowered him from a basket in Antioch. Lord, help us to be willing, particularly the men in this church, that we would be willing to stand in the gap and that we would be motivated by that sure, precious promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Father, we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And Lord, we ask that you would hasten that. I know much must happen before that day. 
Not anything needs to happen for you to come for your church, but must, much must happen, including a thousand-year reign of Christ in this present creation. But one day it'll come. And because it will come, we can even rejoice in what you're going to do between now and then. We're going to see that next week. So Lord, what a great privilege it is to stand here and preach to these saints this morning. And whoever may be listening, Lord, I pray for the meal we're about to partake. May it give us strength as these words have given us spiritual strength today. Help us to be faithful to worship you and to rest in our relationship with you through Jesus Christ, who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. He's born in a manger, but he's coming back as a king. He suffered, bled, and died, and rose from the grave that we might have life. And we praise you and acknowledge that today. And we are going to do that in the coming weeks, regardless of what tyranny declares. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.